Good evening. So tonight we're going to be in Acts chapter 12. If you want to go ahead and start turning there, uh, we'll get to there in just a few minutes. So tonight before we get into Acts, or Acts chapter 12, I'd talk a little bit about the structure of the book of Acts. If you look at Acts, you can really kind of break it into two kind of logical pieces. So the first part would be Acts chapter 1 through 11. And this part of Acts is really pro, uh, portraying kind of the river of God's grace growing wider and wider and wider in fulfillment to what Jesus said in Acts 1 and verse 8 when he says, You will be my witnesses in Judea, or pardon me, in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, it grew wider when the apostles were up in the upper room praying and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It grew wider when Peter preached his first sermon and 3,000 people came to know the Lord. It grew wider when Philip shared Christ with the eunuch and baptized him. It grew wider when Saul hit the, hit the Damascus Road and was converted to Christianity. It grew wider when Peter went and spoke at Cornelius' house and his entire household was saved that day and was filled with the Holy Spirit. But the real focus of Acts 1 through 11, this kind of lo first logical piece, is on the Jews. While they somewhat reach, start reaching out to the Gentiles, the primary focus is on the Jews. And the primary focus is centered around the city of Jerusalem. The second logical piece is Acts chapter 13 through 28, through the end of the book. And th at this point, the attention turns from the Jews to more of a Gentile focus. And the, and the epicenter changes from Jerusalem to Antioch. And so all the future missionary journeys that Paul and the rest of the, 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 the folks go on will all come out of Antioch. And so sandwiched in between these two pieces is Acts chapter 12. And as we look at it, if you look at some of the, the contextual clues, we can see that um, Luke, who is the author of Acts, actually chooses to take it out of the chronological timeline and move it up just a little bit. And so we can see that he does this for some possibly for a few reasons. Many think that Luke does this so that we can know that God's work in Jerusalem as it shifts from a Jerusalem focus to an Antioch focus, that his, that his work in Jerusalem is continuing. It hasn't concluded, but it continues. So to give, us, to give you an idea of where we're headed tonight in Acts chapter 12, Acts 12 shows us that even in an environment of mounting persecution, even in an environment where the Christians are almost powerless to do anything to resist this persecution except for prayer, that when God shows up in an amazing display of his strength, that the seemingly helpless Christians can get to see the true source of their strength and of our strength today, that the authority and the power of God. So before we get into Acts 12, I kind of want to give you a little bit of background on one of the main characters here. In the very first verse, it just mentions King Herod, but it doesn't really give his background. But if we were back in the Bible time, we'd probably even know who he is, but today we don't. So I'd like to give you just a little bit of background on him to help us better understand who this character is. So King Herod is a son of, a, of a gentleman named Aristobulus. You probably don't recognize his name because he didn't live to be very old. You see, he, had a, he ended up dying fairly young when he was actually killed by his own father, who is, better, is best known as Herod the Great. You might recognize Herod the Great because he is mentioned in the Gospels. 
Herod the Great was the one when Jesus was birth uh, was came to be known that he gave the order to slaughter all the innocent babies in hopes to kill Jesus. So after the death of Aristobulus, his son Herod, the Herod of Acts 12, was sent to Rome along with his mother to be educated. He grew up being very close to the imperial family. As he became uh, an adult, he became somewhat of a kind of a modern-day playboy, if you will. He, he liked to live the high life. And he, in order, but he couldn't really afford it, so he'd borrow money in order to live this high life. And then he'd borrow money from someone else to keep living it and to pay off some of his debt. And so he kept doing this cycle over and over, living a larger-than-life life. But his deeds started catching up with him in about 23 AD when his debtors started catching up with him. So he flees to Palestine to escape his creditors, and he stays for a while with his uncle, who is Herod Atipus, or as he's referred to in the Gospels, is Herod the Tetrarch. You might recognize Herod the Tetrarch because Herod the Tetrarch was the one who put John the Baptist to death. So the Herod of Acts 12, he eventually decided he didn't like living in the poverty under his uncle, and so he went back to Rome to try to regain his high life. But after he moved back and started to get some of his prestige back, he made a few critical remarks about the emperor at the time, who was Emperor Tiberius. And he finds himself imprisoned, charged with treason, and lives day to day wondering if this is the day that the emperor was going to choose to execute him. But about six months later, Emperor Tiberius dies. And lo and behold, he's succeeded by one of Herod's childhood friends named Caligula. And Caligula comes to power, and he not only frees Herod from prison, but he gives him a gold chain weighing the same weight as the irons that he wore while he was in prison. Herod kind of finagled his way uh, with, with, with Caligula, and he ended up being placed as a, a, over several provinces in Palestine. Caligula did not live long, though. He, or he was succeeded soon after by another one of Herod's childhood friends, Claudius. And Herod begin to work on Claudius, and he eventually convinces him to let him be the ruler over Judea and Samaria. And not only be the ruler, but he convinces them to let him carry the title of king. So he becomes King Herod over Judea and Samaria. And so if I've lost you in this history lesson, here's the key thing I'm trying to point out through, through covering this, is that Herod, King Herod always grew up around murder constantly in his life. He, he learned that Corruption and manipulation were the currency of his success growing up. He was kind of a modern-day politician. He, he, whenever he was around the people, whenever he was around the people, he acted like those people. So when he was around the Romans, he acted like a Roman. But he was a Jew by descendants, not by conviction. There, there's plenty of evidence out there that he didn't actually practice Judaism. But he, some of the things he practiced, he practiced. For show, he practiced to, to gain popularity. An example would be during an annual festival of the first fruits, he would give lavishly out to the people and give lavishly to the temple to garner popularity with the, with the Jewish people, especially the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the rulers over the people, to garner favor with them. So perhaps to curry favor with the Pharisees, perhaps because he saw Christians as a threat to his throne, he began to persecute the Christians. 
And so that's where our story picks up today in Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. And it reads, About that time, King Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he, and when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads or squadrillions of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. <clears throat> so, so Herod executes James. Luke doesn't really say what King Herod convicted him of, but, we, but he does say that he was killed with the sword. And if we look at kind of what the general uh, reasons for being killed by the sword, or beheaded with the sword at, at that time period, it was generally reserved for murderers or people that created or did tra traitious or traitious acts or traitors or defectors. So he probably wasn't more of the murder, but either way, we probably have a pretty good idea that it was merely a, a show trial. It was merely a mock trial trial with false witnesses and people giving half-truths and partial truths. The death of James, <clears throat> the death of James must have been especially hard on his brother John. Throughout the Gospels we see James and John together. They were disciples of Jesus. They were the two who the mother tried he went to Jesus and tried to convince him to let one sit at his right hand and one at his left hand in heaven. These were the two that Jesus affectionately called sons of thunder in Mark chapter 3, verse 17. And the church was likely shocked as well. You see, this was the first time that one of the apostles, one of the disciples, those who had been with Jesus, were martyred. They probably... Many had been martyred up to this point, but they probably were thinking to themselves, surely not one of the leaders, surely not one of those who was with Jesus would be martyred. And so James is put to death. But his murder only served to ingratiate King Herod, to curry him more favor with the, with the Jewish people, with the, with the Pharisees, with the Sanhedrin. And so in order to keep up this goodwill, to, in order to continue currying this favor, he decides to do it again. And so he arrests Peter with little doubt that he would have the same fate as James. In the natural, Herod probably thought that the people would be, would be uh, powerless to resist him. And so Herod throws Peter in prison. But, but as his luck would hold it, it would, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was just starting. And so he, he knew that the Jewish law forbade any trials, forbade any executions to be held during this time period. And so he knew, unless he wanted to make the Jewish people angry with them, that he couldn't do anything with them until that was over, according to the Levitical law. While this meant that Peter was relatively safe for about a period of a week, it also meant that the church in Jerusalem was powerless to do anything to free him for about a period of a week. Anything except for pray. And perhaps it may have made, their, made it even look more bleak to them if they'd realized that this week, the week that we call today the Passion Week, was the same week that their Christ had been murdered several years earlier. 
So the church was powerless to do anything except for pray. But we can see from verse 5 that they did pray. But sometimes today, we find ourselves in the same place. We find ourselves in a, in a place where we're powerless to do anything but pray. Maybe it's a health condition. Maybe we've gone to the doctor. They've done all that they can do. They tried every test. They tried every procedure. And there's nothing that we, that we can do but pray. Maybe it's about a job. Maybe we've lost our job and we've tried everything we can do to find a new one. But, all we're, but we're all just powerless. We can't do anything. We can't, no one will take us for an interview. And we're just powerless to pray. Powerless except to do anything but pray. Maybe it's a child or a spouse that does not know the Lord. And we feel powerless to do anything but to pray for them. And to those outside the family of God, doesn't, does, there, does anything look more ridiculous than a ragtag group of believers praying for God to help in the midst of helplessness? In their minds, they're probably wondering, why aren't you planning an elaborate escape attempt for Peter? Why aren't you holding a, a, a riot or a, 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 um, a protest at the king's palace to try to get him released? But instead, they prayed. But nonetheless, the people of God continued to pray, and rightly so. And they didn't just pray a normal prayer. In verse 5, it says that they earnestly prayed. And that word earnestly in the Greek, it's ektonos. It, it comes from the word that means to stretch or to strain. See, they were straining in their prayer. They were praying continuously. They were praying zealously, fervently, perhaps praying even agonizingly. You see, it's interesting to look at this word ektonos, this word earnestness. Luke only uses it twice in his writing in the New Testament. We can find one here in Acts, and we can find the other one in relation to Jesus when he's praying on the Mount of Olives the night that he's arrested. And he's praying, Lord, if it be, or Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And in Luke 22, verse 44, it says, and being in agony, he prayed, ectonos, he prayed most earnestly. And sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. So they were praying earnestly. They were praying with a sense of fervor. But their opponents probably thought that they were helpless to resist Herod. After all, Herod had just killed James. And nothing could stop them from killing Peter, they probably thought. So the week passes by, and it's now zero hour, and Passover comes, or Passover is complete. And now Herod is ready to take Peter in front of his kangaroo court, and to likely to sentence him to death. And verse 6 begins with a description of that final night. In verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring them out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping, between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the centuries before the door were guarding the prison. Did you, did you catch that? Let's read it again. Now, when Herod was about to bring them out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping? Really? Peter was sleeping, and he, as we see here in a little bit, he was sleeping quite soundly. What peace from God must that have taken? His best friend, 
that he had been with for several years had just been murdered last, a, a couple weeks ago. His trial date is set for tomorrow. He's chained up to two soldiers. That can't be very comfortable. And while, and will likely see the same fate of his friend James. But through the peace of God, the peace that only God can give, he finds rest on that night. And regardless of how bad your situation is, God can give you that same rest. God can give you that same peace. So speaking of Peter's accommodations, Herod had likely heard the stories that we can see recorded in Acts 5. I won't take the time to read tonight due to, due to, uh, due to time, but this is, it's a story the last time Peter was put in, the last time Peter was arrested in the city of Jerusalem. And let's just say it didn't work out so well for him last time. You see in Acts 5:19 it says, "During the night an angel of the Lord opened the gate, opened the prison doors and brought them out." So Herod probably not being Jewish with Jewish conviction, probably didn't think it was an angel. He probably thought it was some of his helpful friends. So Herod wasn't going to take any chances. To, he wasn't going to let his dangerous prisoner slip out of his grip or his prisoner that would help him curry favor. And so we can see in verse 4 that it tells us that Peter was guarded by four squads, or some translations say quadrillions of, of soldiers. And a quadrillion is simply a squad of four soldiers. So he's guarded by four sets of four soldiers, 16 soldiers, four for each of the watches of the day and each of the watches of the night. You see, they would break their watches into three-hour shifts. So if you were on duty from midnight to three, you would know that relief would come at three. But you'd be back on duty again at noon to three the next day. It was common for prisoners to be uh, common for prisoners to be chained to one soldier. It, they would usually chain the left the the, uh, the dominant hand of the prisoner, the right hand, to the to the left hand of the soldier, so that if he tried to escape, that the soldier's dominant hand would be free to take the necessary actions to prevent your escape. But we can see that Peter was chained to two soldiers, one to each hand. Herod wasn't taking any chances that he'd be able to escape. And the other two soldiers were outside the cell doors, keeping watch. They were the sentries. Herod took every precaution that he could, but there was no way that he could have prepared for the display of power that was soon to come. He was not ready for God to send his angel armies to Peter's rescue. So picking up in verse 7, it says, And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter in the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And when he, and when and he said, "Wrap yourself in a wrap your cloak around you and follow me." So in those two verses, five things happen very quickly. The angel comes into the cell and, and, and enlightens it up. He comes in, he flips on the light switch. But Peter is sleeping so soundly that the light from the angel doesn't wake him up. So the second thing is, the angel strikes him to wake him up. The angel tells him to quickly get up, and Peter's chains fall off so that the other guards are unaware that he's attempting to escape. 
And Peter is told to quickly get dressed. And Peter obeys. But he's probably a little groggy. I mean, think about the last time you got woken up in the middle of the night and were told to get dressed quickly. I can just imagine his sandals were perhaps on the wrong feet. His tunic was probably crooked. His hair was probably uncombed. And he was probably desperately in need of his morning cup of coffee. And in verse 9 it says, And he went out and, he went out and followed him. He did, not, he, did not know, he did not know what was being done by the angel was real or if it was of seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gates leading, leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and they went along one street and then immediately the angel left them. Peter was dazed. He was like a sleepwalker who didn't really know where he was or why he was there. But Peter follows the angel. He thought he was probably dreaming or was ha having a vision. This would not have been uncommon for him. He had a vision before he went to the house of Cornelius. And after all, he had never been to Walmart. He had never seen doors as he approached them open automatically. Every time he had seen a door open, someone has always been on one side or the other opening the door. So as they pass the guards and the gates, he's probably yawning and rubbing his eyes, starting to realize the reality of his situation. His chains had fallen away. He had walked right past the two guards in the cell that were supposed to be guarding him. He walked right past the two sentries that were supposed to be watching him. The iron gates swung open on their own. I mean, just take a second and think about it. How incredible that would have been if, if you were there. Sleepy or not, whether you thought he was dreaming or not, his adrenaline was probably flowing. And then poof, the angel's gone, and Peter stood on the streets of Jerusalem, likely rubbing his wrists where the chains had rubbed his hands raw, rubbed his wrists raw from wearing the shackles all week. His eyes were probably tired. He's probably rubbing his eyes and yawning. I hope you're beginning to get the picture that Luke is trying to paint here. You see, these, this ragtag group of Christians possess more power than all of Herod's plans, than all of Herod's armies, than all the legions of Rome, than all the barred doors. And in fact, it only took one of God's secret agents, one of God's angels to liberate him from the captive armies. Peter's experience strengthened the faith of the church, and it can strengthen our faith today. No matter how grim life gets, God is still present. God can still deliver us today. Let's pick up in verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent, the angel, sent his angel to rescue me from the hands of Herod and from all the Jews that were were, and from what all the Jews were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was all, who, who, whose other's name was Mark, where many had gathered together and were praying. So Peter's starting to wake up. And, and he knew that some of the old gang was probably at his friend John Mark's house. He probably knew this because they often went to John Mark's house. And he, he might have known it because he was probably there a few weeks ago praying for his friend, James, 
praying that he would be released. John Mark's family was evidently a wealthy family because they had a large home. The Bible says there were a lot of people inside when he gets there. And they were praying. And they were praying. And they were praying for Peter. And this was not one of those five-minute prayers at an altar time. From the Greek verb tense, we can see that they were praying for many days. Some might have been praying, Lord, deliver Peter as you delivered him last time. Some might have been praying, Lord, you, you, you delivered Daniel from the lion's den. You delivered David from Paul. Now deliver Peter. But regardless of what they were praying, we can be sure that they were praying fervently when Peter knocked on the door. And what follows is a story of confusion and yet joyful humor. In verse 13, And when they knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl, Rhoda, came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, recognizing Peter's voice, in her, in her joy, she, she did not open the gate, but ran inside to report that Peter was standing at the gate. So a girl named Rhoda, which means rose, and from the context, we can tell she's probably fairly young. So a young little rose answers the door and she recognizes Peter's voice, probably indicating that Peter had often visited there so that, so that she would recognize what his voice sounded like. And she's full of joy, which probably indicates she was, she was among the believers. She was a believer as well. And she runs to tell the others. And their response is still, is still quite famous today. They say to her, you must be out of your mind. But she kept insisting. So, so, they start, so they kept saying, it must be his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened this door, they saw him and they were amazed. So Rhoda was not easily intimidated. At first they were saying, oh, you must just be crazy. There's no way he could be at the door. And then they switched the story to say, oh, Peter must be dead, and his guardian angel, or perhaps his spirit, is at the door to tell us that he has passed away. Can't you just hear them saying, shh, Rhoda, can't you see we're praying? Don't bother us with the answer to our prayer. But don't we do the same thing today sometimes? Don't we sometimes not have the faith in the Lord that he's going to answer, not truly believe that he's going to answer, and so when he does answer, sometimes we're slow to recognize that he has answered our prayer. And in case you think that these type of miracles can't still happen today, that they only happen in Bible times, consider this true story. It was late 1964, and the communist Simba rebels took, uh, took over a town named Tsar. And they began arresting and executing anyone that they considered an enemy of the revolution. One of those victims was Pastor Zebedeo. The day following his arrest was a great political holiday and a great celebration and a great crowd gathered in front of the monument of their spiritual leader of the revolution. And there were many speeches from dignitaries and there was plans to execute a large number of prisoners in front of that monument that day. The prisoners were taken out of their cell. They were herded into trucks to be taken to the plaza. But mysteriously, the trucks refused to start. 
the prisoners were finally unloaded and compelled to push the truck until it was start. When they finally arrived in front of the angry police commissioner's office, the furious official, wanting not to further delay, lined the people up and he told them to count off one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. And he told all the twos to march back to prison. And he told all the ones to double time it to the monuments. Mere minutes later, all the twos safely back in their cell heard the horrific sound of gunfire and the screams that followed. They wondered why they had been spared that day. Pastor Zebedeo was among them. And he shared a message of hope, a message of heaven and eternal life. And eight people came to know the Lord that day. Hardly had the pastor finished ministering those words when a messenger out of breath, arrived at the door with orders that, to release Pastor Zebedeo. You see, the pastor had been arrested by mistake. They released him, and Pastor Zebedeo bade the other prisoners farewell and started to return to his home. He heard, which was next to the chapel, and he heard a great noise in the chapel, so he went into the house of God, where he found many on their knees, praying earnestly for his safety, earnestly for his release. And great rejoicing came when, when the answer to their prayer walked in the building. And their prayer service became, became a praise service about God's faithfulness. Can you see it? The God of Peter is still alive and working today. The God of Peter is still working in lives today, still answering prayers today. Let's take a look at verse 17. But motioning, but motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed from them and went to another, another place. So Peter went on to tell the, the Christians that were gathered there at the house about his miraculous story of his escape. Peter's deliverance became one of the, famous, one of the favorite stories of the early church, including the account of the inter interrupted prayer service. I'm sure, I'm sure it's always brought some laughs about their disbelief that he was at the door. I'm sure it brought some tears as they remembered their brother James who wasn't so lucky, but it probably also brought strength to their faith in the mighty power of, the, of God to answer prayer. So as I begin to close tonight, I want you to ponder a few questions. Do you believe that God is still in control today? Do you believe in the power of prayer? And if you do, does your life reflect it? Are you spending the time praying as you should? Let me tell you one last story before I close. Just before World War II in the town of Ithaca, Texas, there was a fire in a school and it claimed the lives of 263 children. It was a horrifying tra tragedy. After the war, Ithaca built a new school and they put in the finest sprinkler system in the world. They, they said never again would, it, would citizens of Ithaca be caught with such a tragedy. They, they hired some honor students to take citizens from the town around and to show off the sprinkler system, to show off how it was built and how it worked. 
and how it was assembled. But the town continued to grow, and about seven years later, they needed to add an addition onto the school. As they begin construction, they discover that that world-class sprinkler system, the one that they all bragged about, the one that they educated people about, the one that they just knew would keep them safe in the time of trouble, was never connected. Perhaps there's some people here tonight who know that God is in control, who know, who believe in the power of prayer, and perhaps have even educated people about the power of prayer. But if you're honest with yourself, you would say that perhaps you're not connecting to the source as often as you should. So as, as we're closing, and Ken, if you want to come back to the keyboard, I'd like to just spend the next five minutes for us to take time and connect to our source, spend time in prayer, spend time committing to connect to the source on a regular basis. So you can make an altar where you're at. If the Lord is calling to you, the altars are open and you're welcome to come. But let's just spend the next five minutes connecting to our source. And then Pastor CJ can come back and close us out.